God became flesh and dwelt among us. To see how we know that to be true, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. It may be found on uh, page, page is that? Page 1127, 1127, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Page 1127, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Before I read God's word, though, let's call upon his Holy Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who is with us, Emmanuel, in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, now that you have sent your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in all truth. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit inspired John to put pen to parchment that we might have your written word today. So God, as we read these powerful words, we pray that by your Spirit, you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, any Jew who would have read the first verse of John chapter 1, verse 1, would have recognized these words, this opening phrase, in the beginning. It's straight from Genesis 1-1, as we can see there up on the wall. Uh, The very beginning of the Bible begins with those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. Do you remember how God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter one? He speaks with his words. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the the plants and the animals with the simply spoken word of his mouth. Yes, God's word is powerful. Words are powerful, are they not? I remember as a little boy, though, I was told that if I was ever verbally bullied by someone, I should simply respond by telling them, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anybody ever say that before? That's not true. Words can hurt a lot. If you've ever been verbally abused, you know what I'm talking about. In fact, there was a study done at the University of Chicago. They monitored the human brain, and they found that, well, our brains have a negative bias. That if we hear negative words, well, we actually have an emotional response to negative words that's much more powerful than the response we have to positive words. In fact, there was a different study at the University of Washington done on married couples, and they found that it takes five positive comments to overcome one negative comment. Husbands, know that, five to one. A lot more positive than negative, okay? We gotta make sure we're a lot more positive than negative. And it was interesting, as they were monitoring the brain in the University of Chicago study, they noticed that the amygdala, which is that little, it's about the size of a peanut, right in the middle of your brain, they would give this emotional response at negative words. And this emotional response is that fight or flight response you would have, you know, and, it, and it's for our good that we have this fight or flight response. You have like a wild animal's coming at you, you need to run or you need to fight, you gotta figure that out, right? I remember as a little boy, uh, sometimes uh, my classmates who uh, at an early age discovered that Howard, well, it rhymes with coward. And so they would say, uh, hey, Howard the coward, and they would call me a coward. And, and well, my, my first name's Howard, my last name's Griffin. Griffin is a Welsh-Irish name. And my Irish blood would begin to boil inside me. And they would call me coward. And I would find that I was having this amygdala response. It was either fight or flight. And I was usually more of a fighter than a flyer, runner. So I was going to push and shove and wrestle to prove to them, I'm not afraid of you. Yes, words, they can harm us. They can hurt. They can leave a, a deep emotional response, a reaction that we have. And I remember making a mental note to myself as a little boy, as I was getting bullied because Howard rhymes with coward, I thought to myself, if I ever have a son, I will not name him Howard. I'll give him a cool name like John, right? My son's name is John. I named him after John the Baptist and John, my favorite book in the Bible, the Gospel of John, that begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, they actually had a class on just the Gospel of John, and because it's my favorite book, I signed up for that class. And we spent the whole semester translating uh, the Bible, the, 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 the Gospel of John, and then its original Greek to the English so that we might kind of catch some of the nuances of the different English translations to see why some translators chose to choose translate certain words a certain way. And the term that is translated here is word. Well, the Greek word is logos, logos. Can you say that with me? Logos. We get the English word logic from logos. And what John is trying to tell his readers in the first century that, is that God has sent his son to communicate a word of love to all of us. For just as we use words to communicate what we're thinking and what we're feeling, God has sent his son to communicate a message of love, of great love for all of us. 
You know, Paul Harvey, that great radio commentator, anybody remember Paul Harvey? You tell the rest of the story. Okay, good. I asked that question at four o'clock. I was like, very few people knew who Paul Harvey was. It's a much younger crowd at four o'clock with all the little kids. But Paul Harvey used to tell the rest of the story and he had all these great little news pieces. Around Christmas time, he, he would always tell this one great story to help illustrate why, why God sent his son to communicate to us. Paul Harvey tells a story about this agnostic farmer whose wife was faithful in going to church every Sunday morning, and she would always invite her husband to come along with, with her and the boys, but he always said no. Well, it was Christmas Eve, and there was going to be a candlelight service like we have here tonight, and, and so she pleaded with him, oh, you'll love the music and the candlelight. Please, please, please won't you come? Well, he said, I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm not going. He stayed home. She went on to the worship service. Well, while she was on her way, and as he was sitting in the home, it began to snow, and he began to saw these snow flurries falling down. And as it began to snow, he began to hear this tapping on his back window, his back door, and he wondered what that was all about. Who could be trying to tap in the farm out, out here in the middle of the night? So he went out to the back side, and he saw that these there were about four or five birds tapping on the back window, trying to get inside. They were on the windowsill, freezing to death as the snow was coming down. Well, he was agnostic, but he wasn't heartless. And so he thought, oh, what could I do to help save these birds? I know, I'll open up the barn turn on a light, rustle up some hay, and, and shoo the birds into the barn because if they stay in the barn, well, they'll be saved because out in the cold, in the darkness, they'll certainly die. So he goes to the barn, he opens the door, he turns on the light, he rustles up some hay, and he tries to shoo the birds into the barn, but they don't know what he's doing, and they flutter and fly in all kinds of directions, but ultimately land back on his windowsill, tapping on the back window, trying to get inside to stay warm, to survive the night. Well, this farmer wasn't gonna give up he got some bread and he made a little trail of breadcrumbs from the windowsill all the way into the barn. And he thought, I know what to do. The birds will eat. And then as they get into the barn, they'll realize how much warmer it is in here. And they'll just stay there for the night. We made the trail of breadcrumbs. And sure enough, the birds were not only freezing, but they were hungry. And so they began to eat the bread. But as they got about halfway between the house and the barn, it simply came, became too cold for them to keep eating. And they fluttered back and flew back to the windowsill, once again tapping on his back window. Out of ideas reasonable ideas, the farmer thought to himself, if only I could be a bird, then I could communicate to these birds and show them the way to safety, to salvation. And just then, the church bells rang in the distance and realized for the very first time why God sent his son to communicate to us a clear message of salvation to communicate God's great love for all of us here tonight. Yes, you see, the people of God had the Old Testament. They'd had it for centuries, but they, well, they didn't understand it fully. They didn't realize what it was all about. And you see this baby in a manger that we're celebrating tonight in this humble birth, born of a virgin. Well, this baby grows up, and at the age of 30, he launches this ministry where he begins to preach and he begins to teach. And one day he was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he responded by faithfully quoting the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, where he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets are summarized by these two commandments. Jesus, in his wisdom, was helping us see that the 613 commandments that you find in the Old Testament can be summarized by just two commandments. Hallelujah. Thank God for the cliff notes, right? 
Love God. Love neighbor. That's what it's all about. In fact, we now call this the Jesus Creed. And starting January 9th, we're actually going to be doing a sermon series on the Jesus Creed. What it means to live out this Jesus Creed of loving God and and loving our neighbor. Because as we follow the Jesus Creed and focus on loving God and, and loving our neighbor as he's loved us, we will grow in the knowledge of God's great love for us and we'll become an even better conduit of his love to others. As God had communicated to us through his written word, but the people didn't understand it until Jesus came to help illuminate, to help clarify, to help make it all clear. 20th century theologian Karl Barth uses a good illustration to help explain how God reveals himself to us. He calls it the threefold word of God. I think we've got an illustration to show you of the threefold word of God. You've got the outer circle, which is the proclaimed word of God. Most of us hear the word of God before we ever read the word of God. Particularly, this is true in the first century, because in the first century, they didn't have a printing press. Any copies of the Bible they had were handwritten. Many people were illiterate back then. Most people didn't have their own Bibles. They simply heard the word of God proclaimed. And I don't know about you, but for me as a preacher, I want to make sure I'm doing a a faithful job proclaiming the word of God. And so every Sunday, in fact, just tonight, every time before I preach, I, I suddenly I pray Psalm 19, verse 14, where I say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. That as I proclaim your word, may it be faithful to your written word, which is an even better revelation of God's word, because we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. For it's the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write his letters. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired John to write his gospel and Luke to write his gospel. Yes, we know that the word of God is revealed through the proclamation, but even more clearly through the written word. But the greatest revelation of of who God is and who God's calling us to be is found in the middle. The incarnate, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man who as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be studying that uh, next fall as well, you'll see that he illuminates and helps us understand the heart of the Old Testament law and what it really means to, to be faithful, to love others as he's loved us. Yes, if we want to know who God is, we, we look to Jesus. In fact, we should read all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ because if you read all of the Bible, you'll see that the whole thing is ultimately pointed to Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, the word made flesh. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, uh, verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to to change the law, to get rid of it. No, I came to, to fulfill it, all of it. And in his life of perfect obedience, He fulfills the moral law. Yes, the people had the Ten Commandments. They had those 613 commandments that talked about the ways we should live and obey the Sabbath and all these different rules. But no one had ever really done it. And then Jesus came. And he showed us how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He showed us how to love our neighbors, ourselves, by putting the needs of others before our own, by treating them the way we would like to be treated, living out that golden rule that he mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And then he fulfills the sacrificial requirements of the law as well. When he who is without sin dies as the perfect sacrifice on a cross for all of our sins. As the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he writes, For our sake, he, God, made him, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, as that perfect sacrifice on a cross for our sins, has allowed us to now be reconciled to, with God, to be in a right relationship with God as our sins have been atoned for once and for all. It's like when you get a speeding ticket. At least this is what Murray tells me. He drives kind of fast. Get these speeding tickets. No, I'm kidding. I, got, I get speeding tickets too. Last speeding ticket I got, Murray, I don't remember this. We were driving to the men's retreat. I was trying to get Peter Barnes, your buddy, to the men's retreat. It was in Ridosa, New Mexico. I was doing the Lord's work, right? <laughs> driving through some small town in New Mexico, and all of a sudden it went from 55 to 35, and I didn't catch that sign, and I was buzzing through, and I got stopped, and I tried to talk my way out of it and said, I'm doing the Lord's work. This is the speaker for our men's retreat. We're going to talk about how to follow Jesus. And he says, I'd just like you to follow the law, sir. License and registration. Where's the grace? No mercy. I was guilty. I owed a fine. I've had my picture taken by some of the lights here in this town. I owe a fine. I'm caught. Dead to rights. You know, hey, you owe 75 bucks. You ran that red light. I said, I could have sworn it was yellow. I get caught. I get busted. I owe a fine for justice to be served. Scripture tells us we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wage of sin, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus has paid the wage, the ransom, the payment for our sins so that we might have a, a new life in him. And he did all of this ultimately to demonstrate how much God loves us. For as you read in John 3, 16, and read it with me, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave. God had communicated his love through his written word. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, you'll see that God tells the people of Israel, I have chosen you not because you are the greatest of people. No, I love you because I love you. But nothing demonstrates God's love like the sacrificial love of Christ, who in John 15, Jesus says, no greater love is there than this than a man who's willing to die for his friends. It's through Jesus Christ, God shows us that he doesn't just love us this much. He loves us this much. And he wants us to be a conduit of that love. He wants us to to be an instrument of that love by, by pointing others to the great love that he has for all of us together. So how do we do that? How can we make sure that we're being a, a conduit of God's love? Well, as I talked about, we're, in January, we're gonna be looking at the Jesus Creed. We're really gonna focus in on that. What does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, to love others as, as Jesus has first loved us? But if you've never read the Bible before, I would encourage you, starting tomorrow, begin in the Gospel of Mark. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest Gospel. It was the first Gospel written. Just read one chapter a day. 
And ask the Holy Spirit, as you read, say, Lord, help me to hear your word. How might I apply your word today? How might I live these words out today? After you read Mark, then read Matthew, then Luke, then read John. Then go through Acts and Romans and the rest of the New Testament. Begin to spend daily time in God's word so that you might hear him speak to you, so you might be a conduit of his love. You know, every Advent, uh, we, I, I write a letter to uh, church members that I know who have lost family members in the last year because I know how difficult that first Christmas can be without that loved one. Several years ago, my, my father passed away, and that first Christmas without my dad was a, was a tough one. And as I was writing letters this year, I found that I was writing more letters than I've written in a very, very long time. I wrote a letter to, to Jan Hargrave, wife of Charlie Hargrave. Y'all remember Charlie Hargrave? If you knew Charlie Hargrave, you loved Charlie, because particularly your kids, because every Sunday he would give my kids lollipops. Charlie would give out those lollipops to the chagrin of all the dentists in town, get them jacked up in sugar, and they go to Sunday school all wired. It was great. My kids loved Charlie Hargrave. I had to write a note to Carol Harper, wife of Bill, Bill would always sit right over here on the lectern side. I'd come in at 8.30, and he'd always say good morning to me. And, and every fall, he gave me a box of, of Colorado peaches, which are delicious, Colorado peaches. I, I had to write a note to Harry Fields, the son of Mary Ann Fields. In fact, she's in the bulletin. Someone's given a point study on, in honor of her. Mary Ann was only probably about 4'8", 4 feet inches, but she had like a, mi- a smile a mile wide just lit up with the love of Christ. And, and every Sunday, she would shake my hand after the service and say, I pray you have a glorious week. Literally, every Sunday, I pray you have a glorious week. And with Mary Ann praying for me, I usually had a glorious week. I mean, she was just a, a saint, an angel, and she led the children's choir for here many, many, many years. It was hard to write those notes because I missed them. But as we see in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I know that these saints are now with Jesus, specifically they're with Jesus in paradise, basking in the eternal life that Jesus came to bring. Because as you read the gospel of Luke, you'll see that in Luke chapter 23, Luke explains that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, there, were, there was a criminal on either side of him. And one criminal, the confessing criminal, recognized that, well, that Jesus had done nothing wrong to be on the cross that day. And, and so he, he pleaded with Jesus, said, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells this confessing criminal, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The good news of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Christ, we have the gift of eternal life, that nothing can separate us from his great love. As the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, when he writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know how much God loves you? Have you opened your heart to the love of Christ? Have you said yes to Jesus? Because we can see from our text in John that God sent his son, the word made flesh, to communicate to us, to bring clarity to our lives. In him was life, 
and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of Christ, the love of Christ, as we turn our hearts and minds to Christ, we realize that that is what defines us, not the harsh words of other people, not the demands of this society or this culture who says you need to wear these things or look this way or do this or do that to be loved or accepted. No, the love of God is unconditional and it's sacrificial. That's why Jesus came to show us, to demonstrate God's great love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. Have you opened your heart to the love of Christ? And if you have, then I would encourage you to join us this January as we, as we look at the Jesus Creed, what it means to love God and to love our neighbor, that we might be a conduit of his love to others and gratitude for his great love for us. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who has made yourself known to us. You have communicated a clear message of love. While the world will often give us harsh words of condemnation, words of judgment, words of, of pain, you are a God who only speaks a word of love if we will open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who's never given their heart to you, Lord, I pray that they would do just that. They would say, yes, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I give my life to you. I want to follow you. I want to know what it means to walk with you, to walk in the light of your love. Lord, for those of us who have made that decision maybe many, many years ago, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to walk in your love that each one of us would take the time we need each and every day to, to meditate on your words that we find in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we would seek to, by the whole, your Holy Spirit, to live out these words so that we might be a conduit of your love and gratitude for your great love for us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.